0: This is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica and Edmonton. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 60, Walkabout.
1: Hey, who is this?
0: Hey, yes, yeah, sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to miss last time. It just <laughs> happened.
1: <laughs> well that's okay. We got to uh we got to play uh, have some fun at Jason's expense or was he having fun at our expense? I asked. Maybe
0: you. it was a mu- mutual expense. <laughs> <laughs> little from column A,
2: little from column B. But we are happy to have you back, Shannon.
0: Yes, and I am very very glad. Thank you, Jason, for stepping up uh when I could not so that you could still have a three-person round table on interludes and examinations
1: well you know how you know how important three is to the mimbari yes
0: exactly and you guys apparently took a dinner metaphor way too far oh my god it
2: just made me so hungry
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i don't think we'll have quite that problem this time around uh with our current episode of walkabout so anything initial before we get going
2: you know, I would just like to say that this, for some reason, this is an episode that I always remember not liking. I'm always dreading this episode coming up. And then huh. every time I watch it, I, I get to the end, I'm like, wait a minute, I like this one. It's not so bad. <laughs> so I think maybe just the first time I saw it, I didn't enjoy it because I had only started watching Babylon 5 mm-hmm. not too many episodes back. And it had mostly been, you know, big time excitement and, you know, honestly, I the only plot that I ever remember when I hear the title Walkabout is Stephen's Walkabout plot, and I think mm-hmm. the first time I saw it, I had no emotional connection to this character whatsoever, and I just didn't care about anything that he was doing, or the nightclub singer, or any of that, and I just thought it was schmoopy and schlocky. Mm-hmm. And now, watching it, having gone all the way back to the beginning and, you know, gotten context. to know this character, yeah, yeah it, it means, context means everything here, and I, I, I think I appreciate it more. Plus, you know, the other plot line kind of pretty cool. Yeah,
1: yeah I think I'll Cosign that, Erica. I Every time I think about Walkabout, you know, descriptive title. We have a descriptive title. Um, <laughs> and that is genuinely what I lock in on. I always forget that this is Lita's return, that this is new Vorlon showing up, and first battle between just sheridan's army and the shadows without you know mm-hmm. calling in warlords or anything else like that it's there there is a lot of juicy stuff in here and yet all i ever remember is garibaldi going on walkabout i mean franklin going <laughs> on walkabout excuse me yeah and, and
2: garibaldi finding him
1: yeah and Kalen. Mm-hmm. so yeah i'm ready to dive in on this
0: yeah I'll, I'll just mention in my case what I, I remember that, you know, again, that this is a Stephen centric episode, my problem was I was confusing what happens on Steven's walkabout in the next several episodes and was convinced that something down the line also happened here. And as I was coming up to this, I was thinking, wait a minute, that's awfully fast. Uh, am I right? No, I'm not sure I'm right. So it took me a little while to realize, okay, this is the part of Stephen's walkabout, and there's more to come. So that was my confusion. Okay, then we will get started with what you need to know. Space Station Babylon 5, initially a joint venture for a Space United Nations, staffed by the Earth government, broke off ties to Earth a while ago. It's now command central for the Army of Light, a coalition of several alien races formed to fight a dark force called the Shadows. Last episode, the powerful Vorlons got involved and the Shadows killed their ambassador to the station in retaliation. And after admitting his addiction to stimulants, Chief Medical Officer Franklin took a leave of absence. In this episode, Stephen is doing a walkabout, a variation of soul-searching as you wander without a direction in mind. He meets a club singer, they enjoy each other's company, and she uses his ID to get a prescription painkiller for a terminal illness she didn't disclose to him. Lita Alexander, former Cycor member and aide to Ambassador Kosh, returns to the station to meet his replacement. Replacement Kosh is just as cryptic as any Vorlon, but is clearly pissed off that Lita does not have a piece of Kosh with her. Sheridan decides to test the working theory that telepaths can be used against the shadows and sets up a situation with him and Lita on the White Star. The rest of the Alliance insists on backup, including Membari telepaths on one of their ships. Jakar offers a Narn ship, currently patrolling the station. The Narn captain, Nakal, refuses, because their resources are too thin to risk a ship on a theory. The test run is conclusive. The White Star is able to destroy a shadow ship, with Lita holding it in place. But reinforcements arrive, and the Membari backup is not enough... Until Jakar brings a whole fleet of Alliance ships, overriding the call after Garibaldi yells at Jakar for not fully committing to the fight. And in the battle, Lita realizes that there might be a piece of kosh still around after all. In Sheridan. And that is walkabout. So to get things started, as we have done from time to time, we deviate from the DVD order to what is called the Master List. Um, episodes that, because of production delays and the like, wound up being viewed somewhat out of order from what uh, J. Michael Straczynski planned when the show was being written. And in this case, uh, we have another example. Uh, Walkabout was intended to be after interludes and examinations, but wound up airing after a two-parter, War Without End, without even worrying about the next episode to come, because spoilers, what do you guys think? Is it good to make the change with the master list and view this episode immediately after interludes? Or is it okay to have that gap of another story in between?
2: I'm going to say, and yeah, this has nothing to do with what whatever happens to come in the in the two-parter, because as usual, I don't really remember very well. But uh, I do think that it, it works better here, because... Like I said, that very first time that I viewed it, I viewed it in the airing order. And by that time, I just I think I just kind of didn't give a crap about what was happening to the doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just sort of forgotten about it and resurrecting it as such a main plot point after several weeks it just i don't know it didn't it didn't resonate with me so much anymore so i think i i just like the idea of tackling this head on right away you know he he resigns his post and yeah let's let's get to some of the fallout of it obviously not all of it but some of the fallout of that right away it works for me
1: yeah we also get immediate repercussions from kosh being killed Mm -hmm. with the new vorlon arriving and both of those things I like. I prefer this episode order because you know it. It is kind of linear. There is no break. You do get. You do get immediate consequences for Franklin's departure. You get immediate consequences for Kasha's Death. Uh, we're just barreling along, and I prefer that.
0: And thirdly, uh, we get immediate follow up with the discovery of Garibaldi's that the telepaths might be a key. Weapon against the shadows. They don't wait. They don't hesitate. They immediately come up with a way to test this theory. So, yeah, I agree. Um, It really ought to be viewed immediately after interludes.
1: Yeah, not completely uh, immediately because they had the discovery in Ship of Tears. And then mm-hmm. we had interludes and inv- examinations. But still, it's only two episodes away. So, you know, mm-hmm. especially towards the end of this season, you know, we've been talking a little bit about how propulsive the plot really becomes now. We used to be having a whole lot of standalone episodes. And uh, here's a little arc. And, uh, and and it's just been accelerating and accelerating. And I feel like we're on the downward slope of a roller coaster right now. And Walkabout, it's about, it's about Franklin walking around and he, and he meets a girl, you know. And no, it's actually got a lot more to do with the overall plot. It's all happening in B-plot world, I, I think it'd be fair to say. So, so even though we've got a nice character story in the A-plot, um, this is still moving things along.
0: Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, shall we start there with Stephen's Walkabout? Sure. Okay. Something I'm going to share that after we watched it, uh, Chip turned to me at one point and basically said, is that actress playing Kaylin? You know, what did you think? And I said, well, I really liked her performance. And he's like, yeah, she's almost too good. And so I want to follow up on that, Chip. What makes an actress like Erica Gimple uh, that people might have recognized from Fame, the television series from, I forget ah. if it's the late 70s or early 80s
1: early 80s i think
0: yeah um so what what makes a guest actor too good we just you know spoiled because we've had in general up and down uh guest actors
1: i cannot remember how long it's been since we've had a principal guest star on babylon 5 with so much raw charisma possibly michael york
2: okay Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in Michael York's case, he was playing a character that was very much removed from all of the other people on Babylon 5. I mean, he thought he was from another century. So his acting being somewhat of a different resonance and caliber of that of the people around him actually worked for the story. In this case, she's so fun. <laughs> So far above a lot of the people around her, she's and she's supposed to really fit in. I mean, she's she's supposed mm-hmm. to have chosen to stay on Babylon Five because this is the place where where she belongs. And yeah, it doesn't quite uh, it doesn't quite work so well. But yeah, she's really good. She's just I mean, Richard Biggs is great as Doctor Franklin, but his chops aren't quite the same caliber as hers. And I think that that shows when they have scenes together just the two of them
1: okay i don't think that i would go that far but the characters are very very different people in different places and she just she just lights up when she comes to it when she comes to his table after her first performance in the uh, cd cd nightclub with the really bad digital saxophonist behind her um <laughs> and she breaks into a smile there, there is seductiveness, but warmth, and uh, she's just really compelling. I got that same little awkward feeling that I got from watching Jenna Coleman in her first few episodes of uh, Doctor Who. Like, I, I find this character and this actress uh, very appealing, and it's, I. I think that she doesn't fit in Babylon Five, but kind of for the wrong reason because we've had so many lesser, uh, lesser emotive, less warm, less approachable characters, you know, in, to to compare her with or actors playing those com- characters. Mm-hmm. I I, th- I think she's great, and I really like her, and I would not want a different actress in the role. And yet, I, I, and I hate to to say, Rick Biggs didn't have the chops. But there is this sort of a mismatch there, and I'm not sure what the solution is. I wouldn't want the solution to be, let's get a less dynamic or effervescent actress in the role, you know?
0: Well, what if we, we've seen, you know, Richard Biggs, we know he can inhabit this role. We know how good he can be. What if this was sort of a deliberate move to show... Where the two characters are, we are shown eventually by the end of the story that Kalyn knows who she is, knows where she is in her life, and where she wants to be. Stephen's going on walkabout because
2: he doesn't know. I think that's a, a doyleist interpretation after the fact, trying to uh, trying to hand wave it away. <laughs> I don't I? Don't think that was any kind of a choice. Okay,
0: but we we've seen Stephen trying to woo women before, and you know it, it, mm-hmm. he tends to be awkward in that situation anyway. So. I I was okay with it. I did not think it was necessarily Richard Biggs not being able to match um to
2: match Erica Gimple. That's just me. I mean, it wasn't it didn't like throw me out of the story or anything right, like that. Right. It was just it was just a thing that I noticed. Well, speaking of Steven, I
0: think I saw some things that show that he is definitely at the beginning of his walkabout and a lot of the issues that he has been dealing with are still right there um, but before I offer my idea what do you guys think about this stage of him trying to sort himself out
1: on the nuts and bolts of the situation I was kind of surprised to see him so well he wasn't dealing with, with- withdrawal symptoms or anything like that mm-hmm. he wasn't mm-hmm. he, he was he was acting as though quitting stem's cold turkey was the easiest thing in the world.
2: And he, he seemed really carefree about it, too. Like, yeah, yep, I'm just doing this now.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that we've lost the addiction thread of little too quickly. Mm-hmm. Stems, presumably because they're legal... I, I've, I've got to assume that they are not as that withdrawal is not as dangerous a thing as some other things are. Although certainly alcohol is a, is a legal drug as well, and we've mm-hmm. seen examples of how difficult that is all over the place. So I think we've made the shift a little too quickly to finding oneself I- instead of recovery.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with the point about stems. Um, I don't know if it's a matter of. He's just started, and withdrawal is coming down the line. I, I have no idea what the idea of the medical science might be behind that, but it's a fair point. What struck me was that there are several points where Stephen is still reacting in the same sort of doctorish way that he did in when he was in med lab. And, you know, kind of assuming he's right or assuming he knows best—
1: You'd sleep better if you weren't drinking so much.
0: Yeah, he doesn't even think to ask why she might ask for such a thing. He doesn't, you know, he just assumes that she's, you know, using it to counter the alcohol or whatever.
1: He assumes that she had opened the medicine bottle.
0: Yeah, yeah, things like that. So that that struck me that, that helped me point to the idea that Stephen is still at the beginning of this journey because he hasn't left enough of his... Of the medical situations and the way he thinks medically, he hasn't left that behind yet. We're still seeing him act pretty much, you know, he may be more carefree, he may not have the responsibilities weighing him down, but his mental pathways through his brain have not altered yet. Nothing else to add?
2: I really don't have a lot to say about this. That's (laughs) fine. This whole plot line. I mean, while I, I definitely have more emotional resonance now, like I appreciate Steven as a character, I just... I still, I, I don't know. I guess I don't have I don't have a lot of thoughts about about yeah. what he's doing. It's like he's he is on his his culturally appropriative path, appropriative path, and uh, and okay. yeah, which
1: let's talk about that, shall we? Yeah,
2: yeah. And I mean, I'd I certainly don't know enough about uh, about the the cultural practice itself to be able to speak with any great authority on it, but. Me either. It, but i i've felt like anytime anytime anything that's that's spiritual from any culture doesn't matter what it is 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 used in popular fiction it always kind of makes me squint a little bit and be like ooh cuz cuz i don't have any great strong feeling to it but somebody might and that is is always kind of a especially when it's something like this when it's kind of punching down you know the aboriginal culture not particularly in strength when it comes to the world at this point So it's always a bit iffy. Do you guys know any more about it than I do?
0: Uh, I don't. I feel like JMS, in writing it, tried to be respectful. He, you know, points out that this fictional religion, the foundationists, that they basically borrow customs and beliefs from other cultures. Possibly um, the Verlurker's Guide, somebody speculates uh, in the belief that the foundationists don't think there's any one answer that they think that, you know, answers come from a lot of sources. So they take things that they feel will be helpful. I thought it was done from a position of trying to be respectful. Somebody for whom this is part of their lives, part of their worship. I can understand it if maybe they don't feel the same way.
1: Yeah, we've been sort of discussing the appropriation issue offline leading up to this. And I confess, as a privileged white male, appropriation is not something that I think about a whole lot. By uh, sheer coincidence, as we record this uh, in the last week in one of our local independent weekly newspapers, there was an article by a Japanese-American who visited a Japanese archery dojo in a rural part of the area where we live, and she is concerned about it because is this another example of basically white folks appropriating Japanese culture? And she goes there and she discovers that the people who are practicing it are very respectful and they're treating the practice space with the same reverence that the home organization, which they are affiliated with in Japan, does and things like that. So she she feels comfortable as a Japanese-American going into this space that's being run by white guys. Like I said only only recently thinking seriously about this stuff i think about all kinds of appropriati- appropriative stuff that happens in in our world now i go to a yoga class and we say namaste at the end and i i take aikido and we all bow to the kamiza but there aren't any japanese people in the room you know things like that and i think the I, I think when you think about it a lot there is appropriation happening in these places and it is kind of to use the overused word problematic, that uh, Franklin and the foundationists and the showrunners sort of go in this direction, but it's also a really common thing. Walkabout is, from what little reading I've done, it is a far more specific and specialized part of a rite of passage for uh, people in the uh, Aborigines in the in Australia. Uh, And what Franklin is doing here really just feels kind of appropriative, but it also feels like it's sort of what these foundationist people who take bits and pieces of other religions and all this other stuff, it sounds like what they do.
2: Mm -hmm. I I mean, really, when you think about just religion in general, I mean, many religions are based upon religions before. When you look at, you know, when the Christian holidays happen to occur, hmm, wonder where they got some of those from.
1: Right. Yep. Right. Side eye. Yeah. So I, I think that actually this could have been solved and or at least made less problematic if Franklin called it something other than walkabout and it was a foundationist thing um, that may have been inspired by the Australian Aborigines or something like that. Just mm-hmm. not taken the word because mm. cultures appropriate uh, or adopt things all the time but it might have been a little more conscious just to call it something different.
0: Mhm. Okay.
1: That being said, uh it's interesting what Franklin is doing is kind of interesting and um I I I will be interested to see how his strategy plays out, but it 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 does I I do understand why some people would give it the side eye.
2: Okay. Yep, totally. Including Garibaldi. Really, yeah. I really like that scene between the two of them, where mm-hmm. it just it very much shows where each of their characters are coming from. And Garibaldi, you know, is telling him, "You're you're a man of science, you know, you're a doctor. Why would you be thinking this?" And, and, and Franklin's just like, "Yeah, and what else?" And he's mm-hmm. like, "What do you mean, what else?" Exactly. So it really it was just a, a a show not tell sort of a way to illustrate the point of exactly what Doctor Franklin is doing. Excuse me, what Stephen Franklin is doing.
0: Yeah. Right. There you go. Um. One couple more little tiny things I wanted to mention on this plot uh, before moving on. Um, they were I liked that there was a shout out to Dr. Kyle, who was the mm-hmm. chief medical officer from The Gathering and had treated uh, Kalen before Stephen had arrived. Uh, so that was cool. I also like, um, it, maybe it could have been a little bit stronger, but there is one point where Stephen and Kalen are talking that he does briefly mention that... His he feels he views himself as broken, in some way. I think it's the second time that she's looking at him through her glass, and he asks her what she's doing. Um, and you see the directors showing uh, the different refractions of Stephen through that glass, uh, visually emphasizing that at the moment he was feeling pulled apart in so many different ways, which led him to taking this step. Anything else at the moment?
1: I think I think that covers it. Um, it's odd to see Stephen in med lab so soon after mm-hmm. he's walked out. You know, uh, timing. But you mm-hmm. know, they're in a they're in they're in a relatively small tin can. You know, these things th- these th- these sorts yeah. of things that happen. Um, and it
0: would make sense that he would, of course, follow up and, and see how she is. Right. You know whether he's a doctor or not. That that's something Stephen would do.
1: Right. Uh, but yeah, I I enjoyed it. It's uh, it, I, I enjoyed this plot.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. um, and just as much, you know, it was nice for uh, JMS to show a tiny bit of something else he does. He occasionally writes songs. He wrote the lyrics for both of the songs that um, Kalen performs in the episode. You know, uh, I,
1: help, I getting am getting help
0: from uh, Christopher Franck for the music.
1: You know, tastes will differ, and this <laughs> is a, and this is a very very nineties um oh, yeah mm-hmm. set up just in terms of in terms of the music and the backing band and the visuals and all this other stuff it's it's very dated but i actually do like the lyrics of the song um they're not a, they're not sort of mindless pop and erica gimple i think delivers them very well i can't get over the microphone i can't get over <laughs> the either. i can't get over the instruments you know Kevin Crimin's direction in this episode is fairly good, but there are things that he is good at and there are things he is not. And he is absolutely not any good at staging uh, musical performance.
2: <laughs> okay. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought the songs were fine. It does not come as a surprise. Uh, to Find that they were written specifically for the show because I felt like they were too on the nose. Like, Mm -hmm. for for what we were trying to get across, it was, that was, that was, it was too close. It was too much. Um, But for what they were, it was, that was fine.
0: Yeah, JMS is on record as saying that, yeah, with the lyrics, he was trying to underline the themes of the show, not be, you know, blatant about it. But, you know, if people wanted to read into them, yes, they could.
2: Yeah, I I, I feel like he failed at that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah
0: well moving on uh let's take a moment to look at our new kosh Mm -hmm. so we have a slightly different toilet bowl (laughs) slightly Uh, different (laughs) more than slightly the this one seems to have a different personality right away and his first introduction to sheridan is you know to pop his ship up and go look straight at him (laughs) so what do we think
1: I do like uh, that uh, the Voilon, the first thing that Vorlon does when it comes on board is say something cryptic and annoy <laughs> uh, Sheridan and Ivanova. I think that that's appropriate, <laughs> uh, very consistent. Uh, but the first thing Newkosh does when he encounters Lita is strangle her. Yep. And this is, I mean,. We went through all of this buildup in interludes and examinations when um, Old Kosh assaulted Sheridan. Mm-hmm. There was no motivation here, and that is just kind of scary. And then when we see when we see Lita in Sheridan's office, she's gone full codependent. She's gone. It, she almost. She almost strikes me as like a battered wife. She is mm-hmm. making excuses for the vulnerable Vorlons, you know. They, they're they taking it pretty hard because they've never – it's been a long time since they've lost one. And that is just creepy as hell.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: And I think the the creepiness is enhanced. We have a different design. You know, we assume that everyone else is going to hopefully assume that, you know, Kosh decided to get a new encounter suit. Um But, you know, even the design of this one, you have those um, bits at the end, which, frankly, look like devil horns. And this guy (laughs) is darker and he is, you know, purple and red instead of green. And, you know, just I think everything from the appearance to those initial encounters are, you know, marking very clearly that, you know, whatever Kosh felt about Babylon 5, about the humans and the other races and the alliance, this guy... Does not agree,
1: or has well, some differences of opinion. You know, Let's, yeah. We also see just how much Lita thought of Kosh,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and that was, you know, there, there, there was affection there. There's grief there's She's feeling guilty because she wasn't there. You know, uh, whatever was going on between her and Kosh, it was something.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seemed like it was intense. I mean, yeah. she's. It, well, first of all, I mean, Stephen flipped flipped out because here she She's was. She's finally back. Yeah, she walked in the door, and and you know Stephen just said, "Holy friggin' snot!" He didn't say friggin' <laughs> snot. Uh, you know what on earth? You know, and then he she came in, and he's he, his first thing that he said about her was, "She looks lost," and mm-hmm. he was half joking because she had been gone for so long that like you know she'd be lost on Babylon Five, but but he was also very right about what she looked like because she was clearly affected by this, and. That's mm-hmm. the first thing that she wants to do is is figure out what what has gone on, what has happened, and she is definitely more distressed by it than I kind of would have assumed. Kosh is such a cryptic standoffish, you know, dude thing guy mm-hmm. alien person. And uh It. Yeah. <laughs> And and yet and yet Lita is is mourning him as if he were a very very you know close to her in some way mm-hmm. which I guess he was we keep talking about having a piece of him whatever that means and and yeah so she is she is upset and then I just I feel like I experience a lot of this plot line through her eyes because then she encounters Nukash and Nukash is just instantly a jerk to her. And mm-hmm. she's just kind of she's just kind of stuck with it, poor poor Lita.
0: Yeah, I mean it falls in with how JMS tends to operate when he does have, you know, races that he wants to use a great deal of on Babylon Five. He takes the time and the opportunity to show that none of these cultures are monoliths, none of these races are monoliths. There there are going to be differences of opinion. There's going to be different cultures or different religions. Something individualizes. The members of the major races for us to show that, you know, they're not just all one big planet of all the same thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Anything else? Or shall we slide into uh, what Lita is able to do to help the Alliance?
2: Well, I guess I, I, since I touched on Stephen's sure. direction to Lita showing up, uh, okay. uh, Chip, you mentioned uh, <laughs> you mentioned the first thing Nukosh does is being cryptic, and, uh, and it, Sheridan says that, you know, yep, it's definitely a Vorlon, uh, or something to that effect, and Stephen just laughed out loud. <laughs> He's <laughs> just like, uh, so Stephen decided, he said, well, first of all, he said that the Nukosh looks a little bit like K-9, and from <laughs> Doctor Who, I really wish he hadn't said that because I can't unsee it so that's the thing that's going to to dog me for the rest of my life and uh he also said he's like i'm I'm gonna call him kosh the white because because (laughs) lord of the rings i guess uh and then Uh yeah and then (laughs) after he was being after he was being all cryptic and stuff steven was just like oh yeah after uh sheridan says he's a vorlon all right Stephen laughs out loud and then mutters under his breath well he says uh it's a hard it's a hard one to uh, to clean up but it it starts with an m and then there's an f in the middle of it and it ends with <laughs> er, er so so yeah, so Stephen quite likes the new costume um because the back of it doesn't look like a big weird bra, which I have to agree original Kosh's costume from the back looked pretty strange and and ugly, so mm-hmm. so it, it seems like I, I don't know that Steven necessarily has any strong feelings, positive or negative. But costume wise, costume wise, thumbs up, thumbs up for the new Kosh.
0: Moving on to the third piece of this uh, puzzle uh, that this, that is this episode. Uh, as we said, we have uh, Sheridan forging ahead to test his theory on telepath, and you know, luckily Lita's here to help him do that, and he has, does not hesitate to ask her for that help. What do we think about his plan, uh, about the Alliance amending it very forcefully, and how it all works out?
2: I think it's great. I think this is a wonderful example of Sheridan being the creative leader that we know that he is. He's mm-hmm. been successful in military campaigns in the past because of exactly this kind of thinking, exactly this kind of thing. So he he's like, all right, we've we've possibly got a, we've possibly got a weapon here, but we need to figure out a way to use it, a way to test it, and that is that's scientific thinking right there. I'm I'm all for this, and <laughs> and I do I did also love the pushback that he gets from the rest of the folks being like, uh-uh-uh. like, you don't get to just throw yourself in harm's way. And, you know, and, and play Mr. Hero. And that, that, that impetus is also very much like him. Uh, that's, that's sort of another little bit of what I feel like is a, uh, a character carryover from Sinclair, who, you know, it's one of the, the things that we shared between these two characters when we had to switch from one to the other. He still wants to put himself in harm's way before putting other people in harm's way. Way he doesn't seem to have like quite the the death wish that we got from Sinclair from time to time, but he has this drive to protect other people, and I love that we're we're seeing it this way, and I love that we're seeing it completely thwarted, (laughs) just being like, nope, because because really when it comes right down to it, it's it's nice and noble of him to not want to to risk too many people, but everybody else is right too it's it's important to bring back information. So you need to, mm-hmm. to put forth all of the resources you can in order to actually get something out of this rather than just risking a few pieces and possibly coming back empty-handed.
1: Speaking of continuity, the Narn warship from the end of season two. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it is perfectly well-motivated to be coming back at this point. Uh, I love the bit with Lando at the beginning, a Narn War Cruiser. How do we? How do we know that it won't turn its guns on a Centauri vessel? Yeah, we, we that don't. that was brilliant
0: <laughs> and a lovely way to get the exposition in to remind people of that half of the situation.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then I'm not sure that I necessarily buy that Jakar would have faltered so much uh, in his sort of moral authority in deferring to the captain who didn't want to risk his ship when they need to be uh, strengthening themselves for trying to retake Narn from the Centauri well, i I thought that I thought that Jakar was being just a little too passive and deferential there, but it makes for a great payoff in the end when he mm-hmm. is when he has not only convinced the Narn to get involved, but a whole bunch of other ships.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great payoff. I I would wonder whether um the reason Jakar hesitated was because this might have been the first time that the first opportunity um since since the Narns on the station defended from the Earth attempt to take over the Babylon five, that, that this is the first time that he's asked to commit huge resources towards a situation, and therefore it's the first time he's hit up real resistance, and that makes him hesitate.
1: Maybe, but, I mean, he was so good. He's had so many great lines since Dust to Dust about how the Narn must sacrifice. We we must sacrifice ourselves. We must—and for— But you
0: know what? But to pardon the expression, the fact that he falters makes him a bit more human or more fallible— as the character that, yes, he's been leading, trying to lead people in this direction. You know, he's not always going to be right. Um, he, he makes the mistake. We get the chance for Garibaldi to tell him off and remind him point And that's blank, a
1: great scene, by the way. Yeah,
0: d- that we get that scene that Garibaldi is able to turn around and tell him, you know, point blank you're going to just, you know, everybody's going to look out for themselves again, which is, of course, the opposite of what Jakar wants. So that, you know, not only wakes him up and spurs him to go get that Narn captain and say, look, we got to do this. But then he brings everybody else along, too. So it's worth it to me.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I part of me also wonders, and this is this is a little bit after the fact, hand-waving, trying to, to make it make more sense, but that... He is, you know, the Narnar kind of a militaristic race, but he has not been an actual military leader that we know of anytime fairly recently, at least. I mean, maybe back mm-hmm. in his, his younger days. And, you know, the commander of a ship is really, a, that's a tight, that's a tight group. Like, you know, you, your men are your men. And he may have balked a little bit at committing, committing resources that he really felt were were the captains. Like, you know, this is their home. It's not just that he's sending troops out. He's actually mm-hmm. sending, like, this is the place that they live. They live on this ship. They don't really have anywhere else to go. So it's it's destroying a tiny, teeny little planet or a tiny town uh, at the same time as as it is sending out troops. So there, there might have been a hint of that as well.
0: Um, or maybe... I was trying to figure out how I felt about um the captain actor is Robin Sachs. We have seen him before under Membari makeup. Just sort of wondering this time the performance felt maybe a little wooden to me. I don't know about how you all thought about it.
1: Well um, last time we saw him he was just basically on a screen. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, as as the as the Narn Captain okay. that is.
2: So I I liked it. I thought I thought he was a a good militaristic okay. sort of guy, so I mean you know wooden might actually fit in a little bit with that mm-hmm.
1: that was always my argument with Sinclair, I tell you <laughs> true
0: <laughs> Fair uh, enough. just making me wonder the the fact that um because his performance was by and large restrained um another reason for feeling like you know why you know why did Jakar falter so easily? They didn't get into a shouting match over it the um the captain didn't argue. Like super super hard about his side, even if if we even if we got a great deal of that, so that may be a little bit of why why that feels a little bit uh, wobbly. Yeah, but we have um, the Sheridan's theory works. We see that Lita can uh, takes her a little bit, but uh, once she realizes just exactly what happened to Kosh, that gets mm-hmm. her dander up. She's mad now and. She stops a shadow ship cold in space.
1: Can I wave my Patricia Tallman pom-poms a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> Only if
2: you let me join you. <laughs> uh,
1: she does a great job in this episode. Uh, she, uh, not every moment is pitched super perfectly, but by and large, uh, she shows tremendous range in this episode from loss to grief to fear to, um... Kick anger, anger. <laughs> um... You know, she's sort of going through all of the stages of grief and from denial to burn you bastards. Um, That's the new that's the new hierarchy there. I like the way that she reacts when she first makes telepathic contact with the shadow vessel. And it's just weird and alien. She's having a real H.P. Lovecraft moment Mm -hmm. uh, until Sheridan uh, until Sheridan gets through to her and maybe something else gets through to her. And she remembers Kosh, and she visualizes what happened to him, and she immobilizes the shadow, and they kill it. And it's just, it's just really neat. And then, I like the danger that comes up when the ship's engines have been taken, jump engines have been taken offline. Here come the reinforcements. Mimbari ship comes in. Three active telepaths, four shadow vessels. The math is not favorable. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And uh, you
1: know, it's and the it's,
0: fact that Lita can't do it again right away that lends verisimilitude.
1: Yeah, um, it's 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 good tension and it's good to, and it's good storytelling. Jakar arriving with the ships isn't quite up to the level of. Uh, uh, Delin coming to the rescue <laughs> at the end of Severed Dreams, but it's but still very little. N- is it's still a nice capper to this, and the Shadow Vessels similarly turn tail and run.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And- it's just it's just great. She she really does run the gamut of all of those things. And yeah. And I that that moment where she where Sheridan is trying to get through to her and grabs her hands. That is such a like. P- you know, it's it's baffling. like we we don't really know exactly what happened. She sees how kosh died like you know it's not just she's visualizing it i mean we're seeing we're seeing exactly the same sequence and sheridan didn't see that sequence so how how these pieces fit together we don't quite know all we know is that lita is in on it now she she understands how he died and is ready to get revenge and and that is sort of you know her her turning point there and it yeah that moment i think is is just fantastic and then i think even the rest of the scene too where she is exhausted but pushing through it until she just literally can't do it again um i'm yeah big big lead fan here after this Mm -hmm. episode yeah it it showcases her beautifully
1: yeah they add the trickle of blood to her eye and then she's sort of staring there and she says if you're going to do something do it quickly i mean really really good range really good performance by her Mm -hmm. I, i i hope steven was satisfied
2: you know he didn't actually say anything in particular specific after afterwards. Steven! I should <laughs> I should have quizzed him on his his thoughts on the telepath I think maybe it's a testament to the show that that she was just so you know swept up and nicely involved in the story that he didn't he didn't find it necessary to call it out after <laughs> the fact it just felt natural to have half her back cuz he liked this he he liked this episode so okay. yeah no complaints
0: yeah um the only quibble i can think of um through that entire battle sequence and it's very easy to hand wave it away uh is the fact that the three Mimbari telepaths apparently didn't need line of sight to do what they did they just needed to be in a quiet place and and reclining uh and their minds open and ready to do what they needed to do while lita specifically said she did but she's human they're Mimbari, so that could be it
1: they could be stronger you never know that
0: too Mm
1: -hmm. i mean did Bester have line of sight constantly on the one shadow vessel before? I don't think so. I think it just slowed down because it noticed that he was there.
0: Mm, Mm -hmm. That's a point. Anything else? Um, One thing I had um, when I was doing show notes is whether or not the end of this episode and the fact that they have discovered that telepathy indeed is a thing. They've managed to bring a huge amount of ships as working together as a fleet to clean up this particular mess. Does this feel like a game changer in
2: the Shadow War? I wouldn't say that it feels like a dramatic game changer. It's just simply because we already, before this, we already knew that telepaths could play a role in some Mm -hmm. way. So I feel like this is more confirmation of a game changing piece of information. So okay. it's it's all part of the it's all part of the same the same thing. I feel yeah. like this is just it's another step in the direction of of something, the direction that we're going. Like we know it's it's not another roadblock to get past, I guess is is what it mm-hmm.
0: is. I guess for me something of I was thinking about was, you know, the fact that previously Sheridan had to convince Kosh to bring the Vorlons in to give their side the the morale boosting victory they needed. And this time Jakar was able to bring them all physically in, in a huge wave of everybody's here and ready to take part. I just, to me, that felt significant, if not a game changer, at least significant.
1: This is the first time we've seen shadows run from ordinary ships. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is also meant to have some significance as well.
2: That's true. That that moment did feel very significant that Shadow Ships actually turned around and ran. I was I was surprised by that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that actually, you know, raises the question for me, which without spoiling things, do the Shadows feel like a diminished threat now? I just raised that question for you because uh this was a small group of ships relatively speaking mm-hmm. that handled four uh Shadow vessels that decimated you know, it, it was four four shadow vessels that decimated the Narn fleet at mm-hmm. the end of the Narn Centauri War. So, you know, just some, yeah. something so, that bears watching.
2: I do have I, the one little little problem that I do kind of have with it is I thought it was too easy for the White Star and the Narn ship to just work together to take out that shadow vessel. I felt like we should have, based on the the giant threat that they were seen as before, uh, that, that it might have been better to have to have more ships at the same time you know so we've got a telepath holding the shadow vessel and you know a a diminished white star and a narn ship are enough to to take it out it just i don't know. it didn't feel like quite enough although maybe that's supposed to be an illustration of just how far behind um the other races the narn are as far as their armaments go um, that their entire the entire fleet could be wiped out by just a hand, handful of these shadow vessels, and the White well, Star is that advanced.
0: Well, that although part of it. that initial attack was was there was surprise that it, that the Narn were surprised by the shadows uh, in that attack. True, um, and they there is at least the dialogue. You know, Jakar points out that the Narn ship currently patrolling the station is the ship with the most firepower of the ones that are right there. So true. Any other comments on directing? I had a couple of little things. Um, if I can go first or I can
2: go last. I don't really have... I don't really have anything. Um, you know, it's it, it was fine. I didn't notice anything in particular. I mean, it, the uh, the... Um Kaylin looking through her glass mm-hmm. was the only, you know, real <laughs> sparkly thing that stood out um, because it was sparkly. And, yeah. and that, was, that, that was a neat touch. I mean, that really seemed like something that was not a directorial thing. Like that was probably in the script. Uh, something well, about Well, possibly, although
0: so. they did it a third time as Stevens leaving the club for the last time. He passes a, a glass, mm-hmm. a wall, a glass wall. And we go through the refraction of seeing a bunch of Stevens one more time. I, so, I
2: suspect that was in the script as that's well. That's totally oh. in the
1: script, I'm sure. Okay. Um, yeah, if it, there is some good stuff that happens in this episode directorially. I like some of the uh, the sort of swiveling Dolly work that Crimmins does with the camera, following Stephen in the club as it's turning to see him watch the performance and things like that. Other And some of the standing shots are just really pedestrian. So I, it's mm-hmm. sort of a... It's sort of a mixed bag for me, and I do think uh, that all of the big moments—the uh, look of the glass uh, th- through Kaelin's eyes, and the last shot, and things like that—just um, like uh, the opening of interludes and examinations, where you have the transition between Kosh's eye and a porthole or something like that—you know, these these things feel too scripted to be just uh, uh, directorial creative bursts.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, then the last thing I've noticed uh, that happened at least twice, um, where Stephen, at one time, he's talking to Garibaldi, and then another time he's talking to Kalen, and the camera does a complete 360 circle around both actors as they're conversing. And that struck me because I noticed it more than once. And it was Stephen every time, whether this was, you know, something directorially sort of examining Stephen or looking at him from all angles, as he is trying to begin this examination of himself.
2: Yeah, that's something that I could definitely buy as a directorial choice, because he is this character who is, is, is not sure who he is. And he's, he's sort of untethered from the world that he has been tethered to. So, yeah, the camera camera movements like that, that that would make sense to me okay. to be a, a choice. Okay.
0: Um, you've mentioned already uh, several things that your Stephen uh, thought about. Is there anything else that you didn't get the chance to mention?
1: Yeah, what was his final verdict?
2: His final verdict was he liked it. Yeah, it finished. I didn't even have to ask him. Actually, it just it ended, and he just turned to me and he said, "I like that one. It's good." So we got a, I think, uh, you know, not over the top, but a solid thumbs up. Okay, always good. Uh-huh. Okay.
0: Um, before we go into spoiler space, um, the last thing that I wanted to bring up. This is the first time that we are recording since the news broke about Jerry Doyle's death, and that first scene. Uh, Between him and Londo, I almost lost the thread because I was so busy (sighs) Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, my God, (laughs) you know, we're not going to get anything else from him uh, ever again in any medium that he did. Um, But there's a lot of great little Garibaldi scenes in here that showcase um, just how good Doyle is in the role.
2: Um, yeah, we- I had that same experience. At, you know, the very first—this is the first mm-hmm. episode we watched, like you said, since since we found out about his death. And then the very, very first opening <laughs> sequence is—is is him not just—it's—it's it's, yeah, it's not just Garibaldi; it's Garibaldi being. Awesome. I yes. mean, he is he is he is at his his most Garibaldi. I think at this point, just you know that the way that he, he sleep
1: tight as he is. I, oh,
2: and and it was you know I want that scene. See-
1: how about that scene with Jakar? Or, I mean, yes. with Jakar that the Jakar mm-hmm. scene I think is even better.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't, I, I'm not going to agree with you. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but I, I like the Lando sequence better because. I don't know. It's it's a little bit more. I like him better. I like him better when he's being cold than when he's being hot. But he's good at both. It's just a personal preference. Yeah, I
0: I, I could maybe see it because he's got that. If we've been if you've been watching the show, the characters of uh, Garibaldi and Londo have always mostly butted heads and occasionally gotten along. So that just fits. And his relationship to Jakar. It, it, I mean, it's still just as long, but we haven't seen as much of it, I think. Um, and it feels like that's kicked into high gear with the formation of the alliance and so forth. But yeah, either way, uh, mm-hmm. either way, Jerry Doyle just sold it in both situations. And even when he's not a focusing character during the War Council, you know, he's a presence and he's you know quick to back up the alliance and say, uh, "Yeah,
2: sorry, John, you're you're not doing this by yourself." Um, you know, I think I think it just I it just came to me. I think the reason that I like the Londo sequence better is because, you know. It, in the, in the very beginning, Londo and Garibaldi, as you said, they butted heads, but they had a bit of a, you know, some sort of a friendship. And that's not something that Garibaldi really had with, with Jakar in the past. Right, they didn't have any true. kind of a closeness. So so you get this: the scene at the beginning is Garibaldi interacting with the person who Londo has become. And I right. feel like there are extra layers there because there's this lost friendship. And I think that he he conveys that in his performance that there is there are multiple layers to what is happening here. And he's not just upset at Lando for the things that he's done. He is upset at Lando for the way that he has changed and the way that he's not the person that he used to interact with before. Whereas with Jakar, it was seeing someone that he didn't, you know, he wasn't particularly close to becoming something new and being upset when he's not becoming it as, as mm-hmm. fast or as fully as he wants it to happen. Both are good, but, but I really like those extra layers. The subtlety is is just delicious,
0: yeah, we extend our sympathies to family and friends. We are going to miss you, Jerry doyle
2: mm-hmm.
0: okay, here here, then moving on, we are about to say goodbye to those of you who are watching through for the first time and being good about your spoilers. As always, you can find us and interact with us at our website, b5audioguide.com. We always have chat threads separated for your convenience, uh, spoiler-free and spoiler-full. Um, then we are also on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. For the next time, sorry, guys, it's a double-hitter. Uh, sorry? Are watching- sorry? <laughs> you mean you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, we are watching uh, the episodes War Without End, parts one and two, uh, for our next discussion. And until then, we will slip through a jump gate. And we are back. And this is the part of the show where we can talk about anything that is coming up without worry, without fear, about any spoilers at all. So if you're avoiding spoilers and still
2: listening, quit it.
0: (laughs) What sorts of things can we think of? This episode
2: starts or continues. Well, I mean, we have the whole kosh thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I felt like we were teetering on the edge of being a little bit spoilery in the non-spoiler section mm-hmm. by, by reading an awful lot into what we get in this first episode. of Well, of the I new mean, Kosh. it's not
0: that much of a stretch. I mean, the first thing, he, like Chip said, the first thing he does is grab Lita in a chokehold and, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't even give her the chance to say anything. So I, I and I honestly think th- those bad ears are, you know, definitely...
1: If I if, if, if I'd wanted to spoil I would have pointed out the resemblance of new Kosh's costume to the shadows.
0: Yeah. It yeah, it actually does look a little bit he like He
1: does that. look a little shadowy. That's the first time that I really noticed it. The costume's going to get tweaked a little later on. I think it it'll, it'll look a little different, a little more proportional uh next time. Um okay. I mean, not, not next season. But yeah, I I don't know. I, I... Did we overdo it, Erica?
2: Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe a little, but you know, that's, it's, it's, it's hard for somebody who's never seen it before to know how much is, is what we're actually thinking, you know, as if we saw it for the first time and how much we're, we're projecting. So mm-hmm. hopefully yeah. they will just read it as, you know, wow, these guys got an awful lot out of this, you know, a couple of minutes.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, I think they made the contrast really obvious right away. So I, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be too hard to think just basically this guy's going to be a jerk. Um, we mm-hmm. do not see yet just how much of a jerk he is um, or the fact that the Alliance realizes that, you know, they don't only have the shadows they have to deal with, but they have to deal with the Vorlons too. And they wind up taking out Alkesh, assassinating him um, so that he cannot be uh, a source of information for the Vorlons anymore um so that's pretty Mm -hmm.
2: grim yeah understandable
0: when we get to get there but yeah uh that's really grim (laughs)
2: And I do think that Lita's performance, too, especially, you know, her reaction Mm -hmm. to it is, is as you said, I think, you know, sort of battered wife kind of, you know, they've, they really have a hold on her. They have, they have both physically and psychically um, manipulated her and changed her. I mean, at her own, you know, request, to be fair, like she wanted in, she wanted, she did this on purpose. But, but yeah, it's, it's turning out to at this point, going forward to not be what she thought she was signing up for, if she even had any idea what she was signing up for. And
0: I don't think, obviously, she didn't. There's going to be a point later on where Ulkesh, second Kosh, uh, basically insists that all she gets in her quarters is a pallet to sleep on, and that's only because she's a weak little puny human. Mm. You know, when Zach Allen comes by with his pizzas and is aghast at the fact that there is nothing in her quarters at all, you know, that's...
1: Yeah, As Chip said, is, abusive husband. Of, this mm-hmm. is part of the arc that Lita has. And I'm glad that Pat Tallman's in um, instead of uh, Andrea Thompson, uh, if only for mm-hmm. the fact that we get this new arc. Lita signs up for this, but she becomes a, she she becomes a tool for the Vorlons. Um, although Kosh clearly respected her a lot more than Olkesh. But she becomes a tool for the Vorlons. Sheridan says in this very episode, and I resisted highlighting this because of spoilers, but in this episode, he makes, he says, I need you to do something for me. He treats her as a tool. Now, he's Mm -hmm. much more compassionate and supportive on the White Star in dealing with her, but from this point on in Babylon 5, Lita is a character who is struggling to be more than a tool, more than what she is, more than a telepath. It's sort of sort of, kind of what uh, Stephen's struggling with in, in a much more dramatic fashion. And until she finally takes up with Byron and turns into a leader of the telepath resistance, you know, right now she is not entirely permitted her own agency. And I mm-hmm. think that this episode sets that up builds that lays that foundation very nicely
2: definitely and i think it also it's It's sort of an interesting illustration of Sheridan as as leader. He is a military leader, and he he often treats the people around him as if they are his soldier subordinates, even when they're not. So, Mm -hmm. yes, Garibaldi and Ivanova and, you know, the people on his staff, that is the way that they should be treated because they signed up for it. They are soldiers as well. They're in Earth Force or were before they broke away. Whereas you get somebody like this who is Lita. She's, you know, okay. yeah, technically they are at war at this point. Point with the shadows, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing to do to treat everyone around you as if they are a soldier in the same way that you are. Yeah, and I think was... that that's an interesting failing of of Captain Sheridan as as a leader because he doesn't quite ever quite ever understand that that's that's not that's not how you treat people,
1: right? And yeah. and it's going to get. Even... And he did the
0: same thing to um to um Talia, you know, when when she mm-hmm. said no, he found another way to do it. Um, right, just. You know he he looks at everybody. Uh, who knows? Maybe he ran into psychops first before he ran into other telepaths. Who knows? But yeah, it shows his military mindset from the get go.
1: Right, and it's only going to get worse uh, when he comes back from Zahadum, and mm-hmm. he uh, mm-hmm. and he he is required to let go. He's required to be dangerous. He allows himself to be dangerous. Um, He holds back a little bit in dealing with Earth and then D'Lynn goes off to deal with issues at Minbar and so he becomes more dangerous again. And part of that sort of danger, uh, dangerous, is being willing to use other people Mm -hmm. to accomplish ends, which, you know, which he believes to be just and in the fiction of the show they are most often just. Uh, But Lita sort of falls victim to all of that and rises as kind of an antagonist in the end until she goes off to explore the stars with Jakar. I just, I, I think that there is a fascinating uh, character arc for Lita here, marred somewhat by the excesses of the Byron arc.
0: Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, that's the way things fell when they didn't think they weren't going to get another season. So, uh, one more thing about Lita is, you know, we've been told she's a P5. We will find out. I forget which episode down the line, uh, one of the ones where Bester returns. We will discover that ain't so no more. Uh, the mm-hmm. Varlons, whatever they have done, have elevated her to probably a level Bester's never even seen. Like she's, a P-
1: she's, she's one of the P20. nukes. She's one of the nukes you hold in reserve.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, and it takes a while for us to uh, get to that point because we actually... Don't get Bester again. We don't learn officially her full potential until after the Shadow War's done. That's um, true. The Shadow War w- winds up in Into the Fire, and Bester returns the next episode, Epiphanies. So yeah, we get you know all this time of seeing what Lita can do, and you know knowing that yes, she's been to the Vorlons, but nothing gets spelled out about how much powerful, how much more powerful she is until the Shadow War's done.
2: At least we've got her back now. Like I'm just I'm relieved that that she is a, a finally a, a a mover and a shaker. You know, she's yeah. she's important because and I, and now I, I don't have to deal with Stephen complaining all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I think that this is the episode that really sells the fact, you know, that she's going to be a regular. She needs to be mm-hmm. a regular. Um mm-hmm. this is the the job that she does in this episode sort of catapults her into um into a starring role, I think.
2: Mhm. Yes. And I feel like she steps up to that. Yeah, very much so.
0: And then the other plot line that uh, will get finished up uh, four or five episodes down the line, uh, Stephen's walkabout will be continuing uh, through War Without End and a couple of other episodes uh, before it ends in, essentially ends in shadow dancing. Um, which is an episode that he is, uh, you know, doing his walk about. He's gotten to a point where he feels he has to keep walking until he meets himself. And in Shadow Dancing, he, if I remember correctly, like interrupts a robbery or interrupts something, gets stabbed. And then while he is struggling, trying to get to somewhere where there's help, he basically, we get the visual representation of of Richard Biggs talking to himself. And the other person he meets basically... Hollers and yells and digs at him uh, to, to, to survive or not, just give up or or decide. Yeah, and we'll
1: have we will have much more about to say about this, but mm-hmm. I love the fact that the end of Stephen's walkabout involves uh, Stephen taking himself to task for having done the walkabout in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm. I did not remember any of that, so all of this is stuff that I've forgotten. <laughs> nope. I mean, when you when if, if you had said, you know, Stevens walkabout, all I would have remembered was this episode and nothing uh-huh. else. So it'll be interesting to re-experience that and be like, oh, so this is where he goes from here. Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, is there anything else we can think of that this episode connects to as far as later on?
1: Uh, I will point out, and okay. possibly I should have pointed this out before the jump gate. Um, we need to start a new check-in. It's the Sheridan hair length check-in. <laughs> As the season continues, ever since Severed Dreams, Sheridan has not had time for a haircut. (laughs) Because his hair is getting longer and longer Uh, by the end of the season. It's going to be practically flowy. It's not going to be Marcus length or anything like that, but it's definitely not military. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that the The sort of visual representation of sort of the breakdown of uh what's happened you know they're still they're still military but they're they're not part of earth force anymore things are things are a little out of control if uh if he was still saluting to somebody on a babcom monitor he would be getting more regular haircuts i'm just saying <laughs>
2: yeah. you know it's 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 sort of like military captain becomes dashing action hero is what we're seeing
1: yeah <laughs> of course when he comes back with from Laurie and all of a sudden he gets a haircut but somehow that happens but but on
0: the other hand he stops shaving well <laughs> which i'm i'm less on board with but that's just me Hear, <laughs> here, here. <laughs> um The last thing I can think of that uh, just occurred to me, and, of course, now it's uh, slipped away again. Oh, um, the piece of Kosh. I don't remember where else it might get mentioned along the way, but, of course, it shows up when they have to uh, contain Ulkesh. And the piece of Kosh jumps out of Sheridan, along with the help from Lori in the first one, to take him down. So that we have what appears to be Kosh and Ulkesh. Uh, back in Olkesh's ship and fighting, and the ship explodes. And the presumption is that they've both, uh, Kosh is finally, really, most sincerely dead, and Olkesh is dead too.
1: Yeah, talking about the piece of Kosh was a little difficult in this episode because this episode does tell you exactly what it means that mm-hmm. was she, what, were you carrying a piece of him with you, you know, that sort of thing. Right, uh, but. If you're only watching this for the first time, as I'm sure Stephen Mm – I'm sure Stephen didn't realize the significance of that. That significance Mm -hmm. will not be really laid out until we get uh, Sheridan's conversation with Lorian on Mm Saha Doom. Did you uh, know
0: you have a Vorlon inside you?
1: Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, You know – you're going to hear Kosh's voice say jump. We had moments in this episode. We're going to have Kosh in the mirror um, and things like that. But um, it's really – it was all given to us in this episode. It was all fairly well told to us. It's just we don't know to put it, all the pieces together until until Lorian restates it at the end. So there, it, I, th- I found that difficult to talk about.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, apparently putting the pieces together is harder than you might think, because actually, as we were recording here, I got a text from Stephen, who was listening to our episode about the last one, about interludes and examinations. (laughs) And he didn't actually realize that Rance Howard was supposed to be Kosh talking Uh to Sheridan. He just thought it was him having a dream about his dad or something. He just, Stephen just hates dream sequences. And (laughs) yeah, now he hates them even more. Except this one wasn't a dream sequence. Yeah, well, he thought it was. (laughs) I know, I know, I get it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
1: Oh, (laughs) Stephen.
0: Okay, can we think of anything else?
1: War without end, war without end, war without end. Yes,
0: time travel and the flip side of Babylon Squared.
1: And the return of Jeffrey David Sinclair. (laughs) And, And, And Zathras. And Zathras. I mean, this... This is this is huge. I we I have I have no doubt that this is going to be a 5-hour podcast next time, but um, <laughs> but I'm 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 super excited. I'm super excited. Um and uh yeah, um I don't know if we'll have time to watch uh Babylon Squared again before this one uh originally uh Prime Time Entertainment Network was actually talking about possibly rerunning it. Before the new episodes, and that did not happen. And I wonder how that would have gone over with folks.
2: Yeah, see, and the thing is, I there's a part of me that would love to show it to Steven again just to refresh his memory, but giant spoilers for what's coming next. Like, why would I bother to do that unless, unless this was had, the other
0: shoe? Yeah.
2: Yep. So I will just have to do what I always do. And you know, maybe after the first episode, <laughs> remind him, Do you so do you remember back in this last one? Maybe, maybe what we'll do is watch War Without in part one. And then Babylon, Babylon Squared. Squared and then, and then oh, okay. War Without End Part 2. That would be interesting. <laughs> Who knows? Okay.
0: All right. So as we've been saying, uh, your homework is indeed both parts of War Without End. That is what we will be discussing next time. And until then, this is Shannon and Durham.
1: Chip and Durham. And
0: Erica and Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.